Okay, now we're going to lean into our story this morning. We're going to be exploring the book of Esther. It's a really powerful story. Um, A couple of interesting things about it. Um, Number one, this book takes place kind of in that period of the exile. Um, It most likely fits into the time period where the children of Israel have been in captivity, Babylonian and then Persian captivity. And most likely it's now kind of happening where many of the Jews have returned to Jerusalem, but some are still in Persia. And so this story takes place in the capital city of Persia, in the city of Susa. The king at that time is Euhasuerus. Um, and so we're going to pick up this morning this story of King Euhasuerus and Esther, who becomes his queen, and her uncle Mordecai. Esther and Mordecai are Jewish, and this, this is not known to King Euhasuerus. And so we're going to kind of explore this story and how God rescues and saves the Jewish people in the middle of their captivity there in Persia. Another interesting thing to note as we get ready to jump in, um, it's, it's one of the rare places in the scripture where we have an entire book of the Bible and God's not mentioned. He is not mentioned by name in the book of Esther. And so it's, it's easy to view him as not present or not active. But that's simply not the truth. I'd encourage you on your, on your own, read through all 10 chapters of this book, and we'll explore some of it together this morning. And my hope and prayer is that we will see that even though God appears to be absent, that we see His hand at work and His activity in the, in the affairs of man, that His hand is upon Esther and Mordecai and the Jewish people, that He's working in the heart and the life of this king And so I pray that not only would we have eyes to see that in this story, but that it would speak some encouragement to us in our lives, that we would have eyes to see God at work, even when He appears to be absent, even when it appears that He's not active, we don't see Him. He is at work, and He is present, and He loves us, and I pray we'll have eyes to see it, all right? So let's pray and prepare our hearts, and then we're going to unpack this story together this morning. Well, Heavenly Father, we love you. God, we pray for faith, Lord, that we would have the ability to trust you when it doesn't seem evident that you're around and that you're active, when it appears that you're, you're distant and we don't see you. God, help us to trust you and have patience during those times. God, I also pray that you would give us eyes to see your activity. Lord, that where you appear to be absent, the truth is you are ever present and you are working on our behalf. And so help us to recognize that, Lord. And God, would you give us boldness and courage? Jesus, we thank you for your love and your grace and your presence in our lives. God, would you help us to recognize that, that we could be filled and strengthened by your presence to live and act boldly and courageously in the times we're living in. Lord, we love you, we need you, and we invite you now to be our teacher, to be our guide. Lord, show us things we haven't seen before. Remind us of things that we can easily forget. God, correct us where we need correction. Encourage us where we need some wind in our sails. We invite you, God, to teach us, and we ask you to give us strength 
to live out what you're showing us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So at this point in the story, I've kind of given you a little bit of the context and the background. Um, This king, this Persian king in chapter 1, he's thrown a big party kind of celebrating his kingdom. He's been the king for about three years now at this point. And in the midst of that party, he wants to show off his queen and her beauty. And so Queen Vashti refuses to come just be this object for people to, you know, look at. And she refuses to come. And so the king is upset and he banishes her from his sight. And so the story unfolds and over the next several years, um, he's, he's ready for a new queen. He wants to replace her. And so his officials come to him and they propose this idea in chapter 2 of what amounts to a beauty pageant. This is a year-long beauty pageant. And so young Esther, this Jewish girl um, who's in captivity there in the city of Susa, um, her parents are, are gone. Um, she's, she's being raised. Her mom and her dad have passed away. She's being raised by her uncle Mordecai, and he's loved her like a father and cared for her. And so here she is growing up, and um, she participates in this beauty pageant. And we see favor on her life in chapter two. And so the people around her recognize it. And then when she finally meets the king, man, he falls in love with her head over heels and he makes Esther his new queen. And so this is now about seven years into his reign as king. This, this young Jewish girl becomes the queen of Persia. And so um, shortly after she becomes queen, something happens and it, it can seem like this little coincidence, you know, a just so happens kind of a moment. But her uncle Mordecai is hanging out by the gate of the city And he kind of hears through the grapevine, these two guys who work for the king, they're plotting to kill him. And so he hears about this and he sends a message to Esther. And then she brings this information to the king and tells him, these two guys are are plotting against your life. And so they go and they discover it and they stop the guys and actually they're put to death. And so the king's life is saved. And it makes a special note at the end of that that passage there in chapter 2 that it was recorded in kind of the king's book um, that Mordecai had uncovered this plot. And so now we fast forward about five years into the future. Esther's been the queen now for five years. And there's this, this fourth character in the story. So we've got the king, we've got Esther, we've got her uncle Mordecai, and now the villain kind of shows up on the scene. And uh, this guy named Haman um, is rising to prominence and to power. And so the king makes him his right-hand man. And so as Haman is rising to power, um, we see pretty quickly, you know, he's pretty full of himself. He's pretty proud of how far he's advanced in the kingdom. Um, He struts his stuff, if you will. And one of the things that he's begun to require is that when other people are in his presence, that they bow down and pay homage to him. It's such a big deal to him. He even gets the king to back him up on that. It becomes a requirement. Um, and so Mordecai, who's a faithful Jew, man, he, he believes you don't bow the knee to anyone but God Almighty. And so Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman and pay him homage when he walks by. And so Haman begins to hear about this and he's furious. And so he begins to plot revenge. And it's not just enough for him 
to deal with Mordecai, he discovers that Mordecai is a Jew and he wants Mordecai and all of his people wiped out. And so the story kind of unfolds where he begins to develop this plan to wipe out the Jewish people. And so the way he's going to make a decision on when and how to do this is we see in Esther chapter 3 verse 7 here, um, he's kind of superstitious. And so he decides to cast dice um, for us. That would kind of be our version of it. It's casting lots in their terminology. They, they called it pur, P-U-R. Um, and he was going to cast lots to determine when was the right time to bring about this act of vengeance. And so chapter 3, verse 7 kind of unpacks this. And so in the first month, it's the beginning of the year, it's the month of Nisan, this is now the 12th year of King Euhasuerus's reign. And they cast pur, which means they cast lots, before Haman, day after day. And they cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Now, this doesn't mean that he was casting die for the entire year. What this literally means is he was taking each day of the calendar and saying, is this the day? Is this the day that we should do it? until the lot fell on the day when um, was the right time in his mind to bring this act of vengeance. And so he was trusting in fate. He was trusting in chance, if you will. He was very superstitious to pick this date. And so the lot falls on the 13th day of the last month of the year. And so he now brings his idea to the king and he says, hey, these Jewish people follow different rules. They don't respect the rules of this kingdom, and I think we should do something about it. And so on this given day of the year, I'm asking you, O king, would you designate some money and essentially will turn our people into mercenaries and any of them that are willing to attack and kill the Jews on the 13th day of the 12th month of the year, we will then designate this reward and we'll give them money out of the king's treasury Plus, they can take whatever plunder they get from the people that they've killed. And so he hatches this plan. The king likes the idea. He's, he's kind of with Haman here. Oh, there's people that are disregarding our rules. Yeah, let's do something about it. And so they agree to this plan. And now we see at the end of Esther chapter 3, this plan is going to be communicated out to all the people and it becomes public. And so in Esther chapter 3 verse 15, it says, then the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. That's the capital city of Persia. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. They loved their idea. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. I bet. These people get this report. Some of them are Jews, and they're going, whoa, what does this mean for us? Others are not Jewish, and they're wondering, where's this coming from and why? They see it's way out into the future. This is only like the third month of the year at this point now. So this is like nine months away. There's this special day coming and they're grappling with, what do we do about this? Am I, am I going to participate in this? And it's created not only confusion, it's created some, some heartbroken um, terror amongst the Jews. And so in chapter four, verse one, we see Mordecai's reaction and it's, it's the same reaction all the Jewish people have. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. 
and he went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and a bitter cry. And it goes on to tell us that, that him and all the Jews, they begin to weep and to fast. They're devastated by this news and they don't know what to do. It's heartbreaking how callously and quickly the king could just agree to this plot. And so the Jewish people now have a date on the calendar that marks their doom. They're about to be wiped out. And it's, it's with this backdrop in the midst of this chaos and this mourning that we really move into the main thrust of this story. And so now Mordecai is realizing, listen, here's Esther, this girl who's like a daughter to me, and she's the queen. And the king has no idea she's Jewish, but man, she has a special place in his life. And so he begins to communicate back and forth with her in chapter four, and he asks her, will you go to the king on our behalf that we may be rescued? And Esther hears this request and here's her reply. She, she's saying to him, hey, you don't realize what you're asking of me. Verse 11 now, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law that you're to be put to death. So she says, listen, you're asking me to do something risky. If I go into the king's court without being summoned, even though I'm the queen, I follow these same rules everyone else follows. The king only sees me when he requests my presence. If I go in there, there's but one law. I'm to be killed unless the king extends, he holds out the golden scepter that he may live. But as for me, I have not even been called to come to the king these 30 days. I haven't seen him in a month. He clearly doesn't want to see me right now. And Mordecai, you're asking me to go into his presence and it's certain death unless he decides to extend his scepter and allow me to come speak to him. It's risky. And she's not sure if she's able to make this plea on behalf of the people. You don't understand what you're asking me. Now listen, Mordecai's response is huge. And, and friends, listen to me. This, this is kind of the whole crux. The whole message of this book is in how Mordecai responds to her. And, and our takeaway this morning, what I hope we can grab from this morning is key. And it comes from this passage right here. And so Mordecai recognizes we're in mortal danger and we need help. He also recognizes, Esther, you have an opportunity. You have a platform. You're married to the king. You could do something about this. And he's not necessarily minimizing her situation. Um, he recognizes she could die, but his point is we're all about to die. And so he sends back this message to Esther in reply. Check this out. This is chapter four now, verses 13 and 14. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace, you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Guys, this is one of the most, not only important passages in this book, but it captures one of the most important issues 
that we see in the scripture. It's an issue that's been debated for generation upon generation amongst the church. And it's this issue of the sovereignty of God, his providence, his control of the affairs of man and what's happening in our world. And the wrestling match that we assume exists between God's sovereignty and the free will of man, our ability to make choices and decisions. And this passage is a beautiful picture that these two ideas, they don't fight with each other. They are meant to dance. They're meant to come together. God's sovereign hand and our choices and decisions, they actually were meant to work together. And we see this picture right here. First of all, Mordecai is saying, God's going to do something about this. He doesn't even say God by name. But the implication there is this. One way or another, the Jewish people will be delivered. The ultimate outcome is sure. We will be delivered. The question is, will you act? The choice is before you to participate in this. Maybe you're here right now for this very reason and you can choose to participate in the purposes of God. You can choose to act in unison with the right thing in this situation. What he's saying is, we can trust God's providence and we should act with purpose. Listen, church family, I, I've seen this in my life. I've lived this in my life. There have been, been small ways that um, I've missed it. There have been little ways in my life that I've seen these little moments that appear to be coincidences. You know, they appear to be just these little happenstance moments. But then I've stepped back and realized, God, you're up to something right there. You're talking to me right there. You're doing something in this moment. And then there's a decision. Well, will I act and cooperate with what God is up to? Or will I let it brush right past me? Will I miss it? Um, there's been several moments in my life like this. Um, one of the big ones was when we um, decided to adopt my son Micah. Many of you have heard that story, where through a, a set of circumstances, um, my wife and I began to realize, I think God is calling us to adopt this child. And one of the key moments for me personally in that story is I'm grappling with the really practical side of this. Adopting a child, um, specifically adopting Micah from Ukraine, between multiple flights and all the expenses associated with it, we were going to spend between $20,000 to $24,000 to bring him home. And listen, at that time, I was a father of three kids. I had a small house with a mortgage, and I was making between thirty-five dollars and $40,000 a year. And so the cost to adopt Micah was approaching what I would make in a year's time. And um, that was kind of terrifying to me. And I remember as we, we felt like God was maybe pointing us to go that direction, I remember just settling in my heart, okay, God, I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to act. I'm willing to take a step to adopt this child. But God, you're going to have to provide this money because it is completely out of my hands to do so. There's no way I could afford this. And we watched God in some of the most unbelievable ways provide every step of the way. And all the financial resource came in just as it was needed in time. In nine months time, 
we had brought our son Micah home and all the financial things had been provided for. It was amazing to watch. Um, friends, similarly, coming to Knoxville, making the choice to leave the area where we had lived for, I don't know, 15, 18 years, somewhere in there, 16 years, I forget the exact number now, but all of our adult lives, my wife and I had met in Nashville, got married, raised children. Um, I'd spent a long time pursuing working at Grace Chapel there and was on staff doing what I loved. And we began to feel like it was maybe time for us to step out in faith. And the move to Knoxville, it was a, a complicated move. I won't get into all the stories, but I actually want to share a couple of these things with you guys. Um, ways that we saw God's providence, ways that He seemed to be working behind the scenes, pointing us to go towards Knoxville. Um, one of the big things for me was when we began to really explore Knoxville and felt like it started to be highlighted and was on our radar. And we were just starting to share that with some of the staff at Grace Chapel and start to take steps to explore Knoxville. I was sitting in a staff meeting and one of my good friends, um, another staff member at the church was there and um, a Chinese student, a foreign exchange student had just come from China, made an international flight to, to Nashville and was going to be staying with him for a few months, participating in this school program over the summer. And this young man had walked into their home and he saw a cross on their wall and he says, oh, I know what that cross is. I just accepted Jesus in my life. Now listen to this. They begin to recount this story of this young man from China who was taking an international flight and just so happened to be sitting next to a woman on the plane who was a follower of Jesus, who had been on a mission trip in China. Get this, she was from Knoxville and her daughter had Down syndrome. And her and her daughter, her daughter was a teenager, they had gone together with their local youth group from Knoxville to China to do ministry. And she's sitting next to this young man on this plane and shares Jesus with him and leads him in the prayer to accept Jesus as his savior. And I'm sitting in the staff meeting and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, like we've been feeling like God's calling us to Knoxville. What are the odds of this? This is crazy. This is unbelievable. And I just was in utter shock. But it was just this little moment where I could recognize like God's hand was on things. Fast forward a few months and we begin to announce to the church. It was the very first Sunday that we told Grace Chapel in Franklin that my family and some others were going to be moving to Knoxville to plant a new church. And that Sunday morning was on a weekend when we had had a women's retreat at our church. And our dear friend, you guys most likely know her, Don Jerger, who had lived in Knoxville for a long time and had, we didn't realize it, but she'd been following Grace Chapel from a distance for a while. She had decided to go participate in this women's conference and then she stuck around and attended church that Sunday morning. And so she's sitting in the audience on the very Sunday when we announce we're going to Knoxville to plant a church. And I'll never forget meeting her as she comes beelining up to the front and introduces herself to me and says, I live in Knoxville. I've been following Grace Chapel for a long time. And we have been praying that God would send a church like Grace Chapel to Knoxville. I mean, it was just this incredible goosebumps moment of God showing us this is what he was up to. Now listen, does that mean that 
we had no choice in the matter, that God was just moving all the chess pieces without us? Not at all. Not at all. In fact, there were several ways, there were several key moments where we had to act. We had to purpose to say, I'm going to participate in this. One of the key moments for me was right before we felt that, that release to go to Knoxville. I'd been wrestling for a long time about what the future holds. And I just had this sense that it was time to go on to the next thing and plant a church and wasn't totally sure where that might be. And I was asking for clarity and asking for direction and just didn't seem like I could get any. And I began to realize, I think maybe the reason I don't have direction for what's next is because I'm still holding on to the past. So Amy and I talked and prayed and a few of my friends, you guys know them, the Hawkins and the Richmonds, we prayed and we just felt like it's time for me to go in and share with my pastor, Steve Berger, that it's time for me to go and I don't even have a plan. <laughs> I'm basically quitting my job and saying I need to leave, but I have no idea where I'm going. And so I'll never forget going into his office and just looking at him and saying, Steve, I love you. I love this church, but I just, I just feel with all my heart, God is calling us to something else. And it's time for me to begin to explore planting a church. And thanks be to God, he, he loved me and looked at me and said, man, I'm with you. I'm for you. Um, we're going to support you all along the way. Go for it. And guys, from that moment, it was like the floodgate began to open and there began to be so much clarity about the future and where we were going to go next. But it took, it took an act of courage to do that. Guys, it, it took acts of courage by some of these families to come along, the Richmonds and the Hawkins to say, hey, we will pick up and start our lives over and go on this crazy adventure where there's no big promises. You know, we didn't have some building and hundreds of people ready for us to come and and preach. It was a brand new thing. And so, guys, the reason I, I tell that story, I, I don't want to share that in some way like, look at us. You know, we, we heard from God and we acted boldly and courageously, and you should do that too. I, I don't mean it like that at all. I mean, there were lots of moments of uncertainty where we were unsure. There were times where things were happening and it was hard to know, God, is that you? Is it not you? There were moments of big decisions to be made along the way. At times, we weren't sure what to do, and so we paused and we waited. At other moments, it seemed clear, here's the right next step, and so we just decided we're going to take it. Friends, the thing I want to encourage you with is this. God is working, and He is active, and He has purposes and plans in this world to touch people's lives, to share His love. But we have choices to make. Will we recognize his hand and his activity in the world around us and in our lives specifically? And are we willing to cooperate, to participate? Am I willing to step up in the moment when it's, when it's my time, when it's my moment to act with purpose, with boldness to say, God, I'm going to do the thing I feel called to do right here, right now. Guys, this is how this works. Will we have our eyes open to see God's hand? Or will we miss things because we just go, oh, that's, that's blind luck. That's a weird coincidence. That's just a chance happening. That's the choice before Esther and the people here in this story. And so I want to I bring this towards a conclusion here, but I want you to hang with me for a couple more minutes 
as we look at how Esther moves forward and we see God's hand of providence moving in this story. All right, and so here's Esther. She, she again, she's just heard from Mordecai where he says, hey, maybe you're here for such a time as this. And here's Esther's decision and her response. Chapter four, verse 16 now. She says, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, and though it is against the law, if I perish, I perish. Man, I love Esther's boldness here. First of all, she says, I'm not going to just rush into this. We're going to set time aside to fast. We're going to take three days and pause and be prayerful and fast, dedicate time to this decision. And then I'm going to step up and I'm going to ask. I'm going to seek God's hand of providence. I'm going to seek his guidance, but then I'm going to boldly step forward and act come what may. And she does just that. And so the story begins to unfold now. And Esther, as this fast is going, she goes before the king into her, his inner courts. And sure enough, as she takes this bold and courageous move, he extends his scepter and he says, come forward, what's your request? And she doesn't just bring out her request and say, hey, the Jewish people are about to be killed and I'm one of them, will you save us? She says, my request is, will you and Haman, that villain, she doesn't say that out loud, but that villain Haman that wants us all dead, will you and him come to a special banquet in your honor tonight that I'm gonna prepare for you? Well, the king's excited. He says, yeah, let's eat. And when we come, I'm ready to hear whatever your request is. I'll grant it, whatever it is, be bold. And so they come to this banquet and the banquet finishes up and they're now drinking their wine after the meal. And the king once again says, all right, what's your request? And Esther, it seems like maybe she's nervous or afraid or she chickens out. Maybe she got cold feet. Um, a lot of scholars will talk about that, and they're not really sure what her motivations were, what she was thinking. But she doesn't bring her request yet. She waits one more day, and she says, will you guys come back tomorrow? I want to throw you one more banquet tomorrow. And then after that banquet, I promise, I'll share my request. And so there's this fateful night, this great in-between. And the question is kind of, why the extra night? Now, I actually want to propose to you guys, I, I don't think Esther chickened out at all. I think this was actually part of her purposeful plan. Listen, I want you to see this again. She said in chapter 4, verse 16, gather all the Jews found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. She said, do not eat or drink, and then pay close attention to this, for three days, night or day, I and my young women will fast also. Then, after the three-day fast, I will go to the king. So her plan is three days of fasting, then I'll make my request to the king. Now, I want you to see this. Chapter 5, verse 1. When she first approaches the king, look when it is. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. See, here's what she's doing. When she first approached the king, it's not after the fast. It's during the third day of her fast. And so the reason 
that night that she pauses and invites them back the next day is to finish what she started. She was going to complete her fast on that third day and then bring her request to the king. It was a purposeful act. And so what happens that night? Well, for Esther, she goes back and completes her fast. For Haman, dude, he's pumped. He just got invited to this exclusive event by the queen where he feels celebrated. It's me, the king, and the queen. I had this huge feast. And she thinks so highly of me, I'm invited back tomorrow. And so he goes home in pride and arrogance. He's bragging about all of his accomplishments and all he's celebrated. And he's strutting his stuff. And so he's, he's really ready now. He's thinking, I, I got some extra boldness now because I've got this favor of the king and the queen. And his wife and his friends talk him up to it. And they said, hey, now's the time. You should deal with Mordecai right now. Don't even wait for that fateful day that's coming in the future. Deal with him now. And so overnight, he has constructed the scripture. Our version says the gallows, but it would have been this huge spike out in front of his house dedicated for Mordecai. And his plan was to come before the king the next day and say, Mordecai has betrayed me. He won't bow down to me and we need to deal with it and have Mordecai executed on that stake. That's his plan. That's what's transpiring in his life overnight. But now we lead to the king. And on this big night, the king is in his bed and he can't sleep. And so he invites his servants to come and read from the book of Chronicles, the book of records about all these stories about the king. And it just so happens by coincidence that they read the story from five years prior when Mordecai had discovered the plot against the king's life and his life had been rescued and saved. And the king realizes, Mordecai saved my life. We never did anything to honor him or to recognize that. And so he calls his servants together and he says, we need to do something about Mordecai. So the next morning, Haman comes in and the king says, hey, what would you want to do for someone special that you wanted to honor? What would be the right thing to do? Haman assumes the king is wanting to do something for him because he's wrapped up in himself and his pride. And he lays out this whole plan to celebrate this person that needs to be honored. And the king hears Haman's plan. He said, that sounds great. You go do that for Mordecai. And on this day, the day when Esther is about to bring the truth to the king, Haman leads Mordecai, the Jew, through the city, declaring he's this honorable person being um, hailed by the king and that everyone should bow before him and celebrate. Whoa. Haman's knees begin to shake and he realizes, I'm in big trouble. And so this all leads up to this final evening and Haman's invited to this feast. And man, you guys, you know, here's the story unfolding. Esther lays it out for the king and says, I'm a Jew. And Haman has plotted to kill Mordecai and me and all the Jews. And the king becomes furious with Haman and Haman is is dealt with. The king has him executed and a new order gets made where the Jewish people are going to now be um, rescued and protected from this disaster. And what was meant as evil against them has now turned into good. And as the story unfolds, man, we see that Esther and her people are saved. 
we see judgment falls on Haman and a new feast gets instituted that the Jewish people celebrate now forever going forward. I said that those lots that they would cast when, when they were kind of rolling the dice, it, they were called pur, P-U-R. Well, Esther and Mordecai now dedicate a yearly feast, the Feast of Purim, where they were going to remember the hand of providence, where their destiny, their fate was supposed to be that they would be killed. And instead, the tables were turned and they were rescued on that very day and delivered. And they lay out how they're going to celebrate this day. I want you to see this. This is in chapter 9 now. I'm going to read verses 22 and 26. Verse 22 kind of describes what they were going to do for this feast where they would celebrate for a couple of days. On these days, the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. This day, verse 26 now, it tells us specifically, therefore they called these days Purim, and after the term Pur, therefore, because of all that is written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them. They literally call the feast the feast of chance, <laughs> the feast of coincidence, the feast of the dice being rolled. But it's an ironic title because the reality is they chose to see in the midst of these quote-unquote coincidences that it was God's hand that reminded the king of Mordecai's faithfulness. It was God's hand that flipped what the enemy meant for, for evil to be a day of deliverance for them. And the way that they remembered God's faithfulness, I want you to hear this, the way they remembered God's faithfulness was by celebrating and by remembering the poor, by remembering and caring for other people in need, just as they had been rescued as people in need. Friends, this is our God. He is at work for us. Even when things seem stacked against us, even when we seem unsure about what the next steps are and we feel hemmed in, persecuted, in, in trouble, in despair, the truth is God's hand of providence is on our lives. He loves us, He is for us, and He's working on our behalf. The question is, will I have eyes to see Him when He doesn't seem present? And... Will I be willing to act with purpose, cooperating with God in this world? Will I participate in the help and rescue of others who are in need? I want to wrap things up by, by taking a look at the psalmist. In Psalm chapter 16, he, he talks about this blending of this idea of kind of the chances of fate versus trusting God and acting accordingly. So I want to read this in conclusion this morning. This is from Psalm 16, verses 5 through 8. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. I choose to trust God. I choose to make Him my God. I look to Him. Then He says, You hold my lot. 
God, there aren't coincidences. I'm not trusting to luck or chance. The Proverbs tells us that the lot lies in the lap of the Lord. The dice lies in God's lap. He's in control. And so I'm choosing him and trusting the one who's in control. Verse 6. I love this picture. He says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. He's saying, I'm not lucky. I'm blessed. God has blessed my life. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be be shaken. The psalmist says, I choose the Lord. The psalmist says, I set him before me. I wait and listen for his direction and counsel. And I don't have to be fearful when things seem stacked against me and uncertain. I will not be shaken because my God is a firm foundation. Friends, my hope and prayer for us this morning is that we could recognize that we can trust in the providence of God, that we would have eyes to recognize Him and His activity even when He doesn't seem to be present, and that we would purpose in our hearts that we would act with boldness and with courage to cooperate with God and what He's up to in this world. At times that might require sacrifice. At times that might require a bold move. It'll definitely require humility. Friends, I'm just being real with you guys. There might be a lot of people that feel like they've got things figured out right now and they're really certain about what we should do. I'm not one of those people. I'm not totally sure what we should do right now. I don't know what decisions we might need to make as a church to continue on and be the church and pray with people and minister to people and touch our community while also trying to decide how do we help and protect people's health. And, and make a wise decision. I'm not sure, but I know this. God is present and he's active and he has a purpose and a plan for my life, for your life. We are here not by accident. We didn't stumble into this season of the coronavirus and all the fallout we're experiencing financially, mentally and emotionally, physically as people are getting sick and some are dying. We didn't stumble into this by accident. We are here for such a time as this. And I want to invite you, friends, watch for God's activity. Be willing to be humble and wait on Him, to to fast and to pray, to seek His counsel. And then when He gives you some direction of how you should act, how He has purposely placed you right where you are, right here, right now, in your situation, in that job, with your children, with your friends, with the neighbors around you. God, how are you calling me to act, to be a voice of love, a voice of hope, God, a representative of your heart to a world in need? Friends, I love you. I'm praying for you. And I'm believing that we will recognize God's activity in our midst and that we would see how we can act in cooperation with him. All right, let's pray together. God, we thank you for your great faithfulness. We thank you for your hand of providence in our life, in this world. God, would you give us eyes to see your activity when you don't seem to be obvious to us? 
God, will you give us humility and patience when that's what's required? Lord, would you give us boldness and courage to step out and act with purpose in cooperation with you towards your good purposes in this earth? God, help us to see that we are here for such a time as this. Give us guidance to act and live accordingly. It's in Jesus' name we pray this morning. Amen. Amen. All right, church family, I love you and we'll see you soon.